Hey this is Sayyam Botani and you're listening to Chai Time Data Science a podcast for data science enthusiasts where i interview practitioners researchers and calculators about their journey experience and talk all things about data science hello and welcome to another episode of quarantine chai with my machine learning heroes ctds.show in this episode i interview mary and from facebook ai research she's a research engineer at fair lab in paris she has recently put out a joint work the paper is titled unsupervised translation of programming languages and uh, if you're not aware of it it was completely mind blowing to go through it and understand what it's doing i think the title gives it away i think the title gives it away but we dive into her research and her journey into the field we dissect the work behind the paper and her research marian shares her perspective on how on how they were able to make this work and quite literally translate code from one language to another so if you're excited to know more about it here's the conversation please enjoy the show I'm really excited to be talking to Marianne who's on the call with me. Marianne, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> so, I know uh, the, you you put out a very interesting work recently. We'll talk about that, but before that I want to talk about your journey. I had read that you worked on uh something that's similar to what you're working on today, but during your master's you had worked on detecting pattern structure. Can you tell us more about the same and how did it uh, connect the dots for you? How did you get interested in machine learning? Yes yeah, so uh, when i i did this uh, master thesis it was about uh, so finding the the pattern in um, finding sorry the re- regularities into patterns so what uh, a pattern for me is um, what you see for instance in clothes or on curtains so it's very small uh, elements uh, that uh, are put uh, together to to do a, like a draw a drawing for instance and when you see it you don't see it like are like random elements but you do see actually regularities yeah. so uh, but it's very hard to uh, to define what a regularity is because it's not it's not just like for instance a line elements or circle it could be like a bit more um yeah something that you see but that you can't really explain why you see uh, some regularities so my my master thesis was about um finding automatically these regularities and express them so basically i had to uh, do a, uh, to express all this i um i i how to say i built a graph Uh, on these elements and uh, this graph represents um, all the orientation for instance the size of the elements uh, the um, the distance between the elements and uh, i had to compute some algorithm to find uh, all the the matching subgraphs uh, into this uh, pattern and this uh, matching subgraph show me um, for instance if you have i don't know a, a 
I, I, I will give you an example. I think it will be clearer. If you have, for instance, four um, elements that are put to draw a square, so you have four elements that are at the uh, corner of the square, you have this little square and you can have in your old pattern another square, but it's just a bigger square. And mm -hmm. your, your eye are going to see that these two, um, these eight uh, points are drawing two squares. And uh, the aim of my algorithm was to find that um, the graph that represents this square I, I into the old graph, you have actually two subgraphs that, um, that describe the same shape and these graphs are not isomorphic, but are uh, what we call um, matching graphs. So it's not uh, exactly the same, but they are kind of the same because the, sign for the size, for instance, is different. So yeah, and uh, my old algorithm was about to find uh, some similar graphs, subgraphs in my old graph to find uh, some uh, repetitions uh, in, in the old pattern. So it was it was uh, an algorithm that it was not um, deep learning. It was uh, more like unsupervised learning because uh, I at the time uh, when I did my my master thesis there were no um, there was no data set pattern data set. So I just have to to do something that was totally unsupervised. So yeah, I, it was about um, finding some some yeah matching some graphs. Did your interest for uh, unsupervised learning broadly originate from there or was, was there another? Uh, no, it dot? was more like uh, I had a teacher in my, uh, it was a computer, um, it was computer graphics and image uh, classes. And uh, one of my professor uh, worked uh, at, the, at this time on, on pattern and he did some papers about, uh, about patterns because he worked uh, with, I don't remember the company, but he was with all the, um, you know, the editing, uh, image editing uh, software companies. So he was working with them. And uh, at that time, there were no tools to edit pattern um, in, a, in a very smart way. So basically, if you, have a pattern, yeah, <laughs> if, you have a yeah, if you have a pattern in your, in your, in your draw and you want to, to, I don't know, move one element and you want that all the pattern follow your, your edit to, to adapt, uh, actually, uh, there were no tools to do it. So basically, you have to move all the elements uh, by end. It was like very time consuming. So he worked with uh, this company to, to, to make it uh, smarter. So he, he, he suggested the, the project and I was very like uh, interested in, in it. So yeah, I started uh, like that. It was not because I want to do unsupervised, more because I, I found the, the final goal uh, interesting. Okay. Uh, I'd also love to know what made you pick up. Uh, you followed, if I may, a traditional path into research. Why did you pick research as a career path over industry? Uh, actually, because uh, so when I did my master thesis, it was in computer graphics and image processing. So uh, at this time, I studied a bit of deep learning for computer vision. But uh, I didn't uh, follow uh, many, many classes on machine learning. So I didn't uh, follow any classes on NLP, for instance, or in uh, yeah, more general machine learning. So I, at the end of my master thesis, I really wanted to, to learn more in machine learning because I had a lot of friends that, uh, was studying, that were studying machine learning and I found it like very interesting. So uh, I hesitating between doing some, because I thought that uh, if, I, if I was going to, to do some research, it was uh, the perfect way to learn, learn many, many things uh, on that field. So I was hesitating between doing some research in that field or uh, doing another uh, master uh, in machine learning. 
So I just applied to uh, Facebook and Google to to do research there. And I uh, <laughs> I succeeded my application. So I was like, okay, I think this is a perfect um, way to, to, to improve my skills in machine learning. And so, yeah, I enter uh, the research there <laughs> and I'm very happy there. So I just want to keep going uh, as long as I can. Uh, That's awesome. Uh, today, yeah. <laughs> like you mentioned, uh, you're at Facebook Air Research Fair. Uh, my researcher friends would know it's called Fair. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us more about the lab? Uh, I think you're at the Paris lab and you work out to the Paris lab on non-pandemic days. Uh, and for people who are not aware, what, what is Facebook Air Research? So uh, in, in Facebook, you have a, a lab that is called FAIR, so Facebook AI Research. Uh, the aim of this lab is to do uh, public research. So everything we do there is to uh, open source uh, our papers, to open source the code uh, if we can, open source the data sets. So it's really to uh, share the research that we do with, uh, with everyone uh, in, the, in the field. And after that, if we have some research that uh, can be used in production, then we, we, we give uh, all the, the research we did and the code to other teams. So it's not fair that is going to put anything in production. It's really uh, other, other teams in Facebook. And you have, uh, I don't remember how many, but I think six or seven labs uh, in, uh, in Facebook. So you have, the biggest one is the one in Paris. Okay. Then you have, uh, yeah. <laughs> then you have a very big one in MPK, uh, so Menlo Park in California, and one in New York. So I think this, these three uh, labs are the, the main, main labs. And then you have others uh, in Tel Aviv, for instance, in London. And we are, yes, collaborating between, between all the labs. And in each lab, uh, something that is maybe a bit different from uh, academic research is that you have a research, uh, so you have scientists, so the, the ones that, that have PhD, and then you have research engineers, so like me, and uh, every project uh, is built with one scientist and engineers, and engineers uh, help scientists to work and give some support to, to build like bigger projects. And uh, so, yeah, you have collaboration between scientists and engineers all the time. Okay. Uh, to, to me, and at least to some people, these, these words research and engineer are, are so different. Can, can you tell us what does a day in your life on non-pandemic days uh, look like? What tasks do you work on? Yes, yeah, so uh, basically uh, I could, <laughs> so, uh, but not all the time. So my days are, um, during my days, uh, so I could if I have to build a new feature in my, in my, in my code base to, for my project, uh, I run some experiments. Uh, I think this is uh, the biggest <laughs> part of my work depending on the project, because uh, when you are an engineer, you can uh, be assigned to projects that are very like engineer projects. So you, for instance, you have engineers that work uh, only on PyTorch. So you don't, for this project, you don't have any experiments. You just have to, to implement the code base. But for a project like uh, the one we just did, Transcoder, you have a lot of experiments to run. So I run the experiments, then I, I check uh, the log, uh, I test my model to see if uh, it goes well. Um, then you, as a research engineer and first author of this paper, you have to, to write the, the whole paper. Then in the company, for instance, uh, for this project, uh, I build a demo, so internal demo for, for my project. 
uh, I uh, did a blog post uh, that is going to to be uh, to be available soon. And uh, yes, and the, the other part is uh, you are in meeting and you are like talking about your research and what you are going to do and you, you exchange ideas with uh, other people in your team, with the scientists of your project. So for us, it was Guillaume Lamp. Uh, and you have also meeting with your manager that is checking that everything is going well, if you need anything. And yeah, basically it's, it's that. <laughs> So, so the manager in your case is also sort of an academic advisor. Uh, if if you were to do a PhD, if, if I can relate to that. Uh, yeah. So if you are an engineer, your manager is not a part of your project. Is uh, it is is someone uh, that is outside of your project. So it's not an academic supervisor, but more um, a care people supervisor. <laughs> like is is just seeing that everything is going well, but it's is not working on your project. But if you are a PhD like uh, Gerstock, for instance, uh, then your manager is also your your supervisor. Thank you for so the for plug. For engineer, <laughs> yeah, and PhD, it's a bit different. Okay, uh, th- thank you for the plug. I've, I've interviewed Talk earlier. Uh, so audience, if you'd like to check out another interview with uh, another researcher from Fair, please uh, find that in the show notes. Uh, I was... I was really blown away. I'm sure the complete machine learning community would agree by your work <laughs> Thank and for you the audience. <laughs> if if they'd like to look up the paper, it'll, it'll be there in the show notes. But if you'd like to Google it, it's called Unsupervised Translation of Programming Languages. Can you tell us more about the overview of the problem uh, to help us appreciate it better? Yeah, so the problem is that uh, usually when you do um, translation, so machine translation for natural languages, you have access to parallel data. So you have a data set that is, for instance, for English, French. You have one sentence in English that is translated in French. So you can learn uh, on this uh, parallel data. But for programming languages, you don't have uh, access to, to this parallel data set. You only have monolingual data sets, so all the code that is uh, available uh, on GitHub, for instance. So you have to build some, to, in order to have a system that is able to translate between programming languages, you have to build a system that is trained in an unsupervised way. And this is actually the very uh, challenging part of the, of the, of the project. So, it's, so it's, to yeah to address this problem, we have uh, used the um, before we did this project. Many uh, advanced machine translation uh, show that you can train uh, with some algorithm that we use in our project, um, unsupervised algorithm on um, on foreign natural languages. It worked uh, pretty well. So we were thinking that maybe if we adapt a bit the tokenizer to to use programming languages, we can use this method on programming languages. And we tried and it worked, so. <laughs> Why is this a difficult problem? Uh, because it, it's already been demonstrated that it works okay for uh, general languages. What's, what's the ch- challenge I'm uh, trying to understand and appreciate the problem better when, when you're trying to work with programming languages? So the first part was that you you had to build new tokenizers because the tokenizer that so to pre-process the data, you have to have tokenizer and the one that you use for natural languages uh, are not the one that you can use in programming languages because there are some there are some tokens that you can't that you want to separate or uh, on the other way that you don't want to separate. Um, so we had to build these new tokenizers. 
And uh, apart from that, I think that all the methods uh, that you can use in natural languages, uh, we, yeah, we, you can use it for, for programming languages. Maybe the only thing that uh, for us was a bit like a question whether or not it is going to work is that, um, how to explain it, but when you have a, a sentence in French, you will always have uh, this sentence uh, in English yes. that have exactly the same meaning. But for programming languages, you have some programming languages that can express something in one line that you can't express in another languages, in another programming languages. So uh, the learning, we thought that the learning could be like uh, more difficult for, for this task than for natural languages. So we didn't know when we started if it was going to work uh, the same way that it worked for, for natural languages. So it's, I, uh, I think it's a more difficult task. Yeah. I, I know you, you're a PyTorch uh, user. Theoretically speaking, can, can this be used to port over my TensorFlow code to PyTorch? <laughs> can this approach yeah, I be think extended? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think if you train like uh, on, uh, on code that uh, use TensorFlow versus uh, code that use PyTorch, we didn't try that, but it could be like a low-hanging fruit uh, follow-up for, for this project, I think. It could be like very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, but coming back to the problem, can, can you share a bit more about the training details? And I believe you've used a single shared model for uh, all of the language translation. Why do you think it works effectively, even though how these programming languages are structured? For example, uh, you just mentioned it, but Java is very verbose, Python is uh, less verbose, but it still works effectively. Uh, what, what does your intuition say about that? So the first thing that we did to to check whether or not uh, it was going to to work uh, is the the pre-training. So uh, the first the first step of uh, our method is the pre-training. So you pre-train one model on uh, so for us it was C plus plus Python and Java um, in a math language model with a math language model um, loss. And the aim of that is to, uh, with one model, to obtain what we call cross-lingual uh, representations. So um, what we mean by cross-lingual representation if, is that uh, we want the um, token that have the same uh, meaning. So for instance, uh, int, integer, and uh, for pattern, you don't have any ints, but the <laughs> same token uh, in, uh, in, in all the languages to be um, embedded on the same uh, representation, which means that the model uh, learns um, the correspondence actually between the, the languages. So this, was, this is the very first step, though. For that, you need to have just one model. And uh, this is uh, possible because you have uh, some anchor points in all the, the programming languages. So you have common tokens in all these uh, programming between all these programming languages. And uh, thanks to these, I think, uh, common tokens, your model is able to align their representations. And the first step uh, so was to pre-train and to check uh, whether or not uh, the, the embedding of the, of the token that have the same meaning are effectively uh, mapped to the same uh, representation. So we checked that. And we also checked that the model is able to, um, to learn a language model so we uh, just uh, to our model to test it, we, we, we give, I, for instance, the beginning of a function and we, were, we, we checked that the model was able to generate something that is syntactically correct for, for the programming languages. And it was the case. So 
we discovered that the model is able to uh, have cross-lingual representation and to learn a language model. So, uh, yeah, I think if we if you have that, then the main part of the work uh, is done. And after that, we 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 train uh, the the translation part. But this is, I think, the major uh, major component. One of the major components. Interesting. Uh, how do you evaluate uh, this work? Do, do you take the programs, run it through a compiler and check if it works? Or how, how do you benchmark how effective it is? Yes, yeah, so uh, before uh, a work, uh, people used to uh, use the same um, evaluation method uh, as the one used in natural languages. So for natural languages, uh, to evaluate your translation, you just um, check the, the, so you have a, a ground truth, the, the, the reference. And so you have uh, in your test data sets, uh, you have uh, a source, then you have the reference, and you check that the generated uh, sentence is close in terms of tokens to your uh, reference. But for programming language, and you, you compute a blur score, for instance, but for programming languages, we thought that uh, it doesn't have a lot of meaning as you can just change one token in your, in your generation uh, compared to the reference, and it can change the whole, uh, the whole program. So for mm -hmm. us, for instance, if you have, I don't know, an inferior instead of a superior sign, then your program is totally different. But in terms of tokens, it will have a very good score. Mm -hmm. So for us, it was not a very good metric. So we decided to implement so, so some unit tests that check that the generated, uh, so we just uh, test on functions because it's easier to evaluate. Correct. And we check that the generated functions um, output the same uh, output for a given set of inputs compared to the to the reference. So basically, we run this this unit test. So we check that the code compile with this and that the code uh, in gives the same output. So as a very as a good uh, running time, you're taking a different approach for masking and back translation. Do you think it was also uh, central to making this uh, approach work? Yeah. Because the so the first thing is the pre-training to have cross-lingual representations, but if you just limit to that, your model won't be able to do anything because it has never been pre-trained to generate something. So uh, the the second uh, step of our of our algorithm is to do uh, what we call uh, denoising autoencoding. So basically, you take a, a function. Um, you mask, as you said, some, some tokens and you train your model to generate, so to reconstruct this, uh, this uh, masked um, source uh, function. So doing this, you, your model learn to uh, generate uh, something based on, uh, so you encode your source, then you give the encoding to the decoder, and then your model generates the, the, the reconstruct um, so reconstruct function. And so doing this, your model uh, learns to embed something and uh, condition and this embedding to generate. So this is uh, crucial to, to do translation because if your model never learns to generate something, it won't be able to, to, to do it at, at this time. And then uh, because you have a very good cross-lingual representation, uh, your model has been able to learn, so to embed, for instance, a C++ um, mask uh, sequence, then to generate the C++ reconstructed um, uh, sequence or function. And if you have very good uh, cross-lingual representation, if you give um, a function Python, then the embedding is close to the C++ representation. And then you can do at this time 
to give a, a Python, a Python uh, function and to generate the C++ uh, reconstruction. Uh, to, uh, so basically, if you stop there, your model is able to translate because uh, you have very good cross-lingual representation. You uh, learn uh, the model to, you have the model, the model I've learned to generate. So basically, if you step there, you can translate. But if you check the translation, they are not very good because you have never done translation at training time. So back translation is here to uh, improve uh, the quality of the translations. So all, actually all the components are, are, are needed. <laughs> okay. Um yeah. What, what would be one low hanging fruit if, if someone was to take this approach and extend it to another problem? What's, uh, what's the uh, future easiest, easiest task that someone could ex extend it to? Okay, so uh, I think uh, to train on other uh, languages would be programming languages would be very good because we have may I receive many, many emails and questions to, okay, I am working with um, SAS and Air, for instance, in my uh, statistical uh, problem. Uh, I want to go from one to another, but uh, it's uh, time consuming to, to reprogram all the things. So this could be very useful, for instance, MATLAB versus Python. I think could be very useful too because you have many many uh, professors, for instance, at a uh, university that used to to use MATLAB in their tutorial, and they want to uh, to and it would be today more useful to do it in Python, but it's just too time consuming to like uh, port all the tutorials. So it would be very useful to have this MATLAB Python system, TensorFlow versus uh, PyTorch as well. Uh, then we have other um, other um, project that we want to test, but we don't want we don't want uh, to to tell more about that yet because we didn't we don't know if we are going to work on this or to let other people do it. <laughs> so we have uh, yeah we have ideas, but for now we just want to to keep them uh, with us. We'll we'll try to get Mary Anne again on the show to know more about. <laughs> How can one effectively collect uh, data sets for, for uh, these approaches? And how, how did you collect uh, the data set for, for your research? So, yeah, so Google uh, BigQuery uh, is a, um, a public um, uh, service that uh, allow you to download. Uh, you just have to pay something, but it's not that much. And you can download a data set and uh, BigQuery, Google BigQuery, uh, as put uh, GitHub um, datasets. So basically I just uh, download the data from there and then I, I um, implement the tokenizers, uh, the detokenizer and all these functions that are needed to, to process the data and, and I process uh, the whole thing. So basically if someone wants to, we are going to, we are almost done with the open sourcing of our code. Okay. And uh, if someone wants to um, to work on other programming languages, the only thing that not it's not uh, a little thing, but the thing that <laughs> that the person uh, will have to do is to um, so download from GitHub um, to, from Google BigQuery, sorry, the the programming language they wants, uh, and then to implement the tokenizer and detokenizer, and it can run. Uh, I implemented a pipeline that process uh, the the whole thing. So you just have to uh, implement these tokenizers, and then uh, the preprocessing can be done with the the code that uh, the code that we are open sourcing. So every bad line of code that uh, bad engineers commit to GitHub is actually stopping AI from becoming effective and taking away our jobs. 
No, no, no. <laughs> you will still need some engineers <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Taking a step back, uh, I'd also like to talk a bit about PyTorch, uh, your thoughts on the framework and uh, if you can also give a teaser of any upcoming features uh, that might be on the release radar from Facebook. Uh, actually, I don't know this. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, so I work with PyTorch, but I'm not aware of uh, what are the, the upcoming features that uh, is going to, to be open source. So okay. I won't, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't say anything about that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, um, this is usually a final question, um, and I'd like to really ask my research heroes about how how do you think a MOOC educated person, since not everyone has the privilege of uh, taking a master's or a bachelor's even in the field, how can a MOOC educated person cultivate a research mindset? What what should they do uh, being an independent researcher, maybe with uh, limited resources, single graphic cards? Yeah, so I think that um, a MOOC, uh, an only MOOC educated person can can do some research like very effectively because I don't think you need to uh, go to a very uh, prestigious university to to learn what you you need to do some research in 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 AI. But I think that uh, one thing that is very important in research is to to have some some chat to discuss with people to exchange and uh, for me um, I, but it's only my opinion but I don't think that if you stay alone you will be able to do some research because I think one major component that you have to get is to have some um, how to say but if is to have some uh, very experienced researcher that uh, are going to give you uh, what they learned during like I don't know ten years or five years and some level all of this guidance. yeah and all this experience that you get uh, from all these um, these years then uh, if you add this you can um, you can ask some question you can uh, try to see if there are something that you can improve in their work and. And then uh, take this research to uh, propose uh, another method or something. But uh, I think, yes, to have the guidance of a good researcher, uh, I think it's, uh, it's very, very important. Okay. Um, because I, as far as I'm concerned, when I uh, joined Facebook, uh, I, so I had my, all my education background. And then uh, I improve my skills uh, just um, because I, I was with very... Um, very like um, yeah, very good uh, scientists, and they learn me a lot of things. They they have the intuition, and the, I think the intuition is very hard to get if you if you stay alone, because they have the intuition because they have like done many many projects before, and the intuition they they get it from from all this this work. So yeah, I think it's really useful to be um, to be surrounded by by a research uh, environment. To, to to your point, I also think. Uh... Facebook research or even other research labs don't have a strict requirement that you absolutely need a PhD or a master's in, in CS or otherwise. So from the audience, I think even anyone can apply if, if they are interested in contributing to research. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I'm not sure uh, because I this is the first place where I work. So I'm not sure for uh, more, uh, for instance, in France, it's in Ria, but uh, all the academic lab. Uh, I'm I'm not sure if you need f to do, for instance, an internship or something to, to, to. I don't know. I don't know if you need that to to apply for for internship. 
But you can also go to conference and uh, just uh, chat with uh, to ask to attend all the um, all the the presentation and then go uh, to uh, you go to the to the poster session for instance and just uh, chat with with the scientists and meet them. And I think people are very like open. And if you meet someone uh, at a conference, then if you have a question, you can just send an email and do a, do a chat with, with this person. And maybe it's sufficient. If I was able to get you on the show, so people like you are always kind to help, enough the, communi help the community. I think uh, the barriers are being lowered. And uh, to, to your point, all conferences are mostly online these days. So it's, it's easier to approach uh, great, great people like you if, you if you're attending a conference. I think so. I think you can just, uh, yeah, because uh, all the um, all the the, the researchers uh, present a, a poster. You have the poster station, and at the poster station, it's really really free. Like you can just go to the poster that you're the research poster that you're interesting to in, and then you just you can ask your question. And I think everyone is very open to to answer. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I think it's easy. Before we end the call, uh, what would be the best platforms to connect with you or follow your work for the audience? Uh, I think we are, so for the open sourcing, I think we are going to post something on Twitter to, to say that uh, we are open sourcing the, the code. And then uh, on the archive, uh, archive version of a paper, you, we give all the, the, mail, the mailing address of uh, me, uh, Guillaume and Baptiste. And you can just send emails. And uh, actually, I receive like I don't know, ten, tens, uh, ten or or twenty emails of people saying uh, I want to work uh, on your, on your, on your, um, on your field, and I would like to add the code and the data set uh, when it when will it be available? And I just take all these emails and put it on the on a note. And once it is uh, it is open source, I will just send a, an email to all of these person to to say it's open source you can use it that's amazing i, I also think uh, for your profile you're also active on twitter and uh, any other social media profiles that you'd like to mention any platforms where you're active uh i uh no i think there is only twitter we're going to uh, put um but it yeah we are just going to 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 uh, put a blog post on the facebook ai uh, website to 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 yes to to summarize all of of our work, but <laughs> apart from that, I think no, there is no and yeah, you can send an email, but there is no other channel that uh, that I use. <laughs> okay, amazing. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and for your yeah, amazing pleasure. contribution. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to give it a review or feel free to shoot me a message. You can find all of the social media links in the description. If you like the show, please subscribe and tune in each week to Chai Time Data Science.